All right, we're in the uh, period, right at the end of the period of the counting of the Omer. Uh, this evening at sundown, uh, Shavuot begins. Uh, and the Sabbaths, the Sabbaths towards uh, uh, Pentecost, uh, going from first fruits, the resurrection, and Shavuot and Pentecost, that period. It's important in both Judaism and Christianity, and for us as Judeo Christians, this period is filled with important themes and truths that we reinforce by the rituals and the celebrations that we observe in the congregation and in our homes. So last Wednesday evening, as we entered into Thursday, we observed the ascension of our Lord as the great high priest who offered his own blood as the atonement for sins in heaven and then sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the Father to put his enemies under his feet. And then he will return to receive uh, uh, the, his bride, which is the church, made up of Israel and the saved from the nations. And he will sit on the throne of his father, David, to return the kingdom to Israel. So these celebrations in the fall that we will do, Yom Kippur and others, tabernacles, are about that return. But we are now in that framework where he has made the atonement and entered into heaven. Today, or this evening, is uh, begins Shavuot in Judaism, and next week, Pentecost in the Eastern Church. And these have overlapping themes and meanings uh, in several contexts. I want to talk a little bit about them today, so that next week when we go through the, the liturgy and the ceremony, we, we understand what we're doing. Because for the most part, we just read the text and sing the songs, right? So... Uh, in Leviticus chapter 23, uh, in uh, verses 11 to 21, we're given the passages that tell us about the counting of the weeks, Shavuot, uh, that starts with the waving of the first fruits grain on the day after the Sabbath, really a Sunday then, uh, and then the waving of the two leaven loaves on the 50th day uh, before the Lord, as we will do next, next week. That ceremony goes back to the time of the tabernacle and the temple and is tied directly in in the New Testament with the resurrection of Jesus and uh, with his ascension and uh, tying in the, the beginning of the fulfillment of Yom Kippur. There's more to Yom Kippur, as you know, but that's part of it. Now, when we get to um, this issue of the resurrection of Jesus... There's actually a text I'd like you to look at in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is a very, very uh, well-known uh, section of Scripture where Paul talks about the gospel and the resurrection and the resurrection body and the second coming. Uh, this passage was read uh, today in our uh, liturgy, um, beginning at verse 20, where it says... Uh, now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. That tying in that idea of firstfruits. Since by man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. So as in Adam all die, so in Christ, or Messiah, all will be made alive. But each one in his own order. So the beginning is the firstfruits when Jesus was uh, raised. And there were others raised at the same time that showed themselves alive in Jerusalem. Then those who belong to the Messiah at his coming, that's the, the resurrection that we hope for. And then there will be at, 
the end of resurrection, even of the unrighteous uh, before the judgment. And the scripture says in verse 25 here that he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that shall be abolished is death. So of all the things that God is restoring, even in the kingdom, at the return of Christ, there will be death. It will be rare, but it will be there. But then at the end of that, the last enemy will be death. Death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire, the scripture says. So this notion of the enemies being put under his feet and the kingdom being established and all of that is part of this ascension and return that often does not get talked about in Christianity because of replacement theology. They just think of Jesus as reigning now. But he's got to sit on his father David's throne as well. So, there is another passage that's important for this, and that is uh, in the book of Ruth. In the book of Ruth, we have uh, a passage in the first chapter. I have it all marked, and then I put it away. my book of Ruth, (laughs) had it all marked out, and then I pulled my ribbon. Oh, that's why I'm always looking at it in the wrong place. My Bible seems to go from Judges to 1 Samuel, right? (laughs) Every time. I got to read Ruth more often so it doesn't do that. In in Ruth, in the first chapter, verse 16, uh, Naomi is telling her Moabite daughter-in-laws to go back. Their husbands are dead. Her husband's dead. They need to get husbands. They're young women. They should go back to their own people. But Ruth, who is seen in Judaism as the uh, ultimate Gentile coming to God and, in a sense, uh, being a convert, uh, but joining herself to Israel uh, in that sense. We won't get into the issue of whether she converted or not. She is in the line of, of the Messiah. The, she's the great-grandmother of David, King David. Uh, Ruth says, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse, if anything but death separates you and me. So what we have here is Ruth the Moabite saying to Naomi the Jew, I am following your God and you will be my people. It's really important to understand that when we accept Jesus as our Messiah, as our Savior, we are not taking him away from Israel. We are joining ourselves to the God of Israel and the Israel of God to come alongside them and in effect say the same thing that Ruth said. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I will, I will dwell in your midst and be a part of you, Israel, in anticipation of all the promises that God has made. And may God judge me if I don't do that. 
right? And so uh, that's an important part. It is traditional on Shavuot for the book of Ruth to be read in its entirety because it also deals with the kinsman redeemer, but it has this theme of the Gentiles also coming uh, to God. Now, one of the main themes of Shavuot is the giving of the Torah, specifically in the guise of the giving of the Ten Commandments. Uh, it is, it is uh, part of Jewish responsibility to hear and recite the Ten Commandments in the midst of, of this liturgy, as we will do next week in our own. So it's the traditional time of the giving of the Torah, or, or particularly the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments, depending on different groups call it different things, that was given by the Lord at Sinai. Now the Torah is more than commandments. It's the whole teaching of God, and it's the basis of the advantage that Israel has over those of us who are Gentiles. At Babel, we were scattered around the world into the nations, and in that sense, Paul describes us as being without God and without hope in the world and being far away. Uh, he says in the Messiah we've been brought near, but that doesn't mean in some sense that we're brought near in a complete, full uh, uh, equality with, with Israel. Israel's got an advantage. And Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 3. We're going to be in Romans a while, so, um, so find your book of Romans and go to chapter 3. In Romans chapter 3, beginning in the first four verses, Paul says, Then what advantage does the Jew have? What is the benefit of circumcision, the Abrahamic uh, covenant? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God, the, the scriptures. They were given the commandments. They were given the Torah. They were given all of that, that they might be a light to the nations. And that gives them an advantage because they were nearer to God, saw God better than the nations did. The, the nations uh, didn't really comprehend God. And so God chose a people to manifest himself through. In some sense, as I have begun to say more and more, Israel is part of special revelation. Uh, we usually say the scriptures are special revelation uh, and Jesus is special revelation. Well, the scriptures and Jesus come from Israel, which is the setting of that special revelation. So he then says, What then, if some did not believe, does their unbelief nullify the faithfulness of God? Really to them. The answer is no, may it never be. Rather, let God be found true and every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged, uh, when you judge. Uh, so the idea is that God has chosen Israel to be his manifestation, to be the people that are near him. And while there are some in Israel that don't believe, certainly there are in the church, uh, there are people that don't believe, that doesn't invalidate all of this. And we can't use that as an uh, excuse to ignore the revelation uh, that comes from Israel. Now, when we get to uh, 
chapter 9 of Romans, Paul picks up on this a little more. And I'd like to go through uh, the entire book of Romans this morning, but I can't do that, so uh, we'll just get bits and pieces. In uh, verse 1 of chapter 9, he says, I'm telling the truth in Messiah. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, that is, separated from Messiah, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons. The resurrection and the full sonship belongs to them. And the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law, and the temple services, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom Messiah, in other words, from these people, Messiah, according to the flesh, came, who is over all God-blessed forever. So what he's saying here is that Israel is particularly significant and it is painful to him that they aren't living fully up to that illumination and that they don't fully understand the Messiah, even though he will tell us in other passages that they are in part blinded to allow us in. And yet it's still painful to him that his fellow Jews don't all understand this mystery of the Messiah uh, in the revelation of Jesus. Now when he gets to chapter 11... And I hate to lose chapter 10, but I have to do it. Uh, Chapter 11, verses 28 and following, he says this. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. We got mercy even though we didn't deserve it. And Israel will get mercy even though it doesn't deserve it. Right? And what an incredible thing. For God has shut us all up in disobedience, so that he may show mercy to all. And then he goes into kind of a doxology. Paul can't uh, let it go. He's got to praise God for several verses and then move on, right? Uh, What a a brilliant uh, uh, plan God has. Now, why is this important? Well, this is important because in many people's thinking, and I know it's not in yours, but I'm always worried that the default, you know what happens. We default into things that we were taught before that may not be right, but when stress happens, you kind of go, you, you run home to mama <laughs> you know, kind of thing. And, and that's, that's a problem. So I want us to be very aware that the Torah, the teaching and the commandments of God were never intended to save. They were intended to be the way saved people walk. And they were not done away with at the cross. The cross is there in effect to redeem the purpose of the Torah so that it can be brought into 
complete fullness. And that's what Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 5. So we'll go to Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, a passage that gets uh, pulled out of its context and left out of its context because in its context we can't get it to say what we want it to say, right? So in, in, in Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 17, Jesus says, first of all, look at the verses before. He's, who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to Israel. Sermon on the Mount, there's not a lot of Gentiles there. He's talking to Israel. And he says to them, you are the light of the world, right? You're a light to the nations. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does a lamp, uh, you light it and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand so that it will light the whole house. What is the whole house? All of God's creation. So let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Well, what good works? Jesus says, now don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. That thing we call the Old Testament. Uh, Dr. Fisher calls it the Older Testament. I'm trying to say that more. I like Older Testament rather than Old Testament. Old sounds like it's been done away with. Older sounds just like it came first. Okay, so I'm working on that. Newer Testament, Older Testament. I really wish we could do that in Bibles, but that'll never happen, right? Okay, so did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, two ways of thinking about fulfill. One way of thinking about fulfill is, I have fulfilled my obligation, I'll see you later. Okay, That's not what he's talking about here. The other way of fulfill is to bring into full operation. We're waiting for something to be completely operational and in full manifestation. That's what Jesus came to do. Not fulfill the obligation, goodbye, it's done, but to bring it into full operation. And we can see that very clearly in other passages. So he says in this passage, um, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the Torah until all is accomplished. Now, I say this every time I read this verse, but I saw this morning that the heavens and the earth were still in place. You know, I noticed that when we drove in here, it was still there. So that means not one jot or one tittle. The ceremonial law, not no peace, nothing has passed from this thing until it's in full operation, and it's never been in full operation. Israel couldn't do it. We certainly can't do it. And so it has to come into full operation. Whoever then annuls one of the least of the commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. They will be in the kingdom of heaven, but they will be least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever keeps and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now look at verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In the kingdom of heaven, the obedience to the commandments has to be greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees had some hypocrites. But they had a lot of people who were very righteous and were obeying this. Uh, and that's what he's saying. In the kingdom, 
this is going to be in full operation. It's why I put one time on a Facebook page, if you don't like the commandments of God, you're going to hate the kingdom of heaven. Because those are the, those are the rules and regulations of the kingdom of heaven. Right? So, he, uh, Jesus affirms the continual validation of the law. He does not and did not remove the law or the purpose of the commandments. He actually argues that they remain valid and they must be exceeded in obedience than what is presently possible. Well, how can that happen? How in the world can the commandments of God be operationally beyond what we're capable of doing even at our highest point of commitment? Well... God has a plan for that, and that plan is found in Jeremiah chapter 31, 31. Jeremiah 31, 31, God says through Jeremiah the prophet, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my Torah within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, and they will be my people. They will not teach each person or neighbor saying, know the Lord. There's no evangelism going on in the new covenant. For they will all know me from the least to the greatest. Notice that least and greatest thing. Uh, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now what God is saying is, at Sinai, I made a covenant with them. I gave them the commandments in stone and I said... Write them on your hearts. You guys know Deuteronomy. You, these words shall be on your heart. And you shall talk of them when you rise up. All of that stuff. Well, what was the problem? They had hearts of stone. They didn't write the scriptures on their heart. The best they could do was write it to somewhat on the outside. Because there's a problem in man. Now... We're not going to criticize the Jews. We can't do it either. Okay? The reality is that these commandments are beautiful. They're good, but there is a problem. And that problem, Paul talks about. But before that, I want you to catch what God says is, what you guys can't do, that is write these on your heart, I'm going to do. I'm going to place them on your heart. He doesn't say I'm going to get rid of my commandments. He doesn't say I'm going to change my commandments. He says I'm going to finally put them in there so that you will obey me from the heart. Okay? Now how is he going to do that? Well, he's going to do that. Uh, first of all, we've got to look at the problem, then we'll see how he's going to do it. So Romans chapter 7. I told you we'd be in Romans a lot. In Romans chapter 7, a passage that you're very, very familiar with, and we pick it up at uh, verse 14. He says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am flesh, sold into the bondage of sin. 
For what I am doing I do not understand, and I am not practicing what I would like to do. I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing that I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. Those commandments are good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. I know that in my flesh, in me, dwells nothing good. I'm the willing to do is present. That Yetzir Hatov is there. But the doing of the good is not there. For the good I want to do, I do not do. I practice the very evil that I don't want to do. But if I'm doing the thing I don't want to do, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then the law. Now, Paul doesn't play on words here. It's translated principle, but he's using the word law. I find then the law that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God, that should be capitalized, in the inner man, the Torah of God. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, which is the Torah, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Are you catching this? There are two laws. There's the law of God that can get into our mind, okay? Partially get into our mind and heart, but can't fully express, can't be fulfilled because of the flesh. The flesh ends up circumventing the intent and purpose of the law. So, Paul says, there are two laws. The law of sin and death, that's in my flesh, and the law of God that's in my mind, and I'm caught between these two things. So he says, wretched man that I am, who will free me from this body of death? The resurrection in Jesus. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other hand, my flesh is serving the law of sin. Now, we've got to keep reading so you get this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, the Torah, as, as, as energized by the spirit of God given to us, has set us free from the law of death and sin. For what the Torah could not do Weak as though as it was through the flesh, God did in sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. When's it going to be fully fulfilled? In the resurrection. We struggle towards it now, but in the resurrection, it will be fully fulfilled in us. Uh, and it is... Manifest as we walk not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And this fits into everything that Paul talks about, about the, the battle between the flesh and the spirit. So, God gave Israel the Torah, and the Torah was helpful, but not capable of being brought into fullness. So, God brought His Son... Through his death, burial, and resurrection, we have been forgiven of that transgression. And now he's given his spirit to dwell in us, to, to help us 
to struggle against the flesh until the time when the flesh is completely changed by our resurrection. Rather than getting rid of the Torah, he got rid of the, the condemnation of the sin that's in our flesh and gave us a comforter to help us walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh, which is what Paul talks about in Romans 8. So when did he send that Spirit? Well, he promised Israel he would give them the Spirit and that that Spirit would not just go upon Israel, but would go upon all flesh. And so we turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, I can't read the whole thing, there's 35 verses here. You know what happened, they were all in one place, probably in the temple area, not in an upper room, in a temple area. They're gathered in one place, the tradition is the upper room, but that's to get rid of the idea of the temple. They were in the temple area, that's where they would be, that's why people heard them and knew what was going on. And they began to speak in tongues, they began to proclaim God in all of the languages that the diaspora Jews who were gathered in Jerusalem, recognize the Psalms are being said in their own language. What is going on? They must be drunk. And Peter says, these men are not drunk, but this is that which was prophesied by Joel. Uh, in the last days, saith God, I will pour my spirit out upon all flesh. And your young men will, your, your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will, will uh, see visions. And, and I will pour my flesh on, my, on men and women alike, on Israel and on the nations. That's really what he's doing. And now begins the move towards the time of refreshing when the restoration will take place. And the spirit being given in us is going to help change the heart and cause us to struggle more towards obedience to God as we await the time when we will fully obey Him because our flesh will be finally dealt with. So Paul then tells us, consider yourselves dead to sin. Crucify the old man. Fight against that flesh that goes against the commandments of God and strive more towards following the Spirit. You see how the Word and the Spirit work together? They're not separate. They work together. And Paul gives us a beautiful example of that in Galatians chapter 5. And this will be our last text. Galatians chapter 5, Paul says uh, in verse 16, I say to you, walk, live, behave by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. Notice that it's not the spirit versus the, the law. A lot of people think that this is the problem. This is not the problem. This is the problem. Okay? But we've been given the spirit to kind of gang up on the flesh. Our, our mind, God's spirit, to gang up on the flesh. To kind of keep it down there. Keep Freddy Krueger in his trash can. Uh, while we try to be more obedient, right? So he says, uh, the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, and these are in opposition to one another so that you cannot do the things that you please. We're back in Romans 7, right? But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. What does under the law mean? Under the law doesn't mean 
under the obligation of the law. It means under the condemnation of the law. We are not under condemnation of the law. We are, uh, we are to follow the Spirit. Now, what is the Spirit going to do? Disobey the law? No. So, again, my example that I've used before... If somebody came to California and said, I don't understand the traffic laws here, and I don't know when to turn and when not to turn and whether I can turn on a red or any of that, I don't know what to do, but I have to get to Fresno. Who knows why? I just picked Fresno. And I said, okay, follow me. I'm going to get in my car, and I will drive according to the rules. And if you do what I do, you follow me, You will not break the law and be under condemnation of the law. That's what the Spirit does. So when somebody tells me they're being led by the Spirit and they're violating the commandments, I know they're a liar. And when I tell myself that, I know I'm a liar, right? We have a theology of getting rid of the Torah when that's not the theology of the Bible. So, he says that we are to do that, and then he tells us how we'll know the difference. The deeds of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, impurity, uh, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousies, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envies, drunkenness, carousings, and those kind of things. Of which I forewarn you, as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Notice the word practice. We struggle against the flesh. Occasionally the flesh wins. That's not practice. But when you say, I'm going to be forgiven no matter what. I'm just going to go ahead and do it. Now you're practicing sin. And the scripture says, there's no grace there. The grace is missing the mark. I'm trying to live following God and I I either didn't get it or I don't understand it, or I fell to temptation, but not looking for temptation so I can fall, so I can pray and ask God to forgive me. That's not not the system. I know that's the system in some people's mind. So he says, those are the things of uh, the flesh. Then he says, but the fruit of the Spirit, if you follow the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no commandment. There's no law. Because when you're following the Spirit, He stays according to the law. So those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, how did we get alive? We were born again by the Spirit. Then let us also walk by the Spirit. And let us not become disruptive in the body of Christ. So, the Torah and the Spirit, the two main themes of this celebration, the giving of the Torah and the giving of the Spirit, are not enemies. The Torah, though, without the Spirit, will be defeated by the flesh. The Spirit, without the Torah has no wisdom and no way to know the correct expression. But the Torah and the Spirit together, together, after all, who inspired the Torah? The Spirit. 
expresses the hope and faith that brings salvation and the kingdom to come and minimizes the impact of the flesh and its damage on our testimony and quality of life. I wish with all my heart I had been taught this as a child. I wasn't even taught this as a minister. And I struggled with this flip-flop, 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 trying to figure out how could I do grace and ignore the commandments of God, because I thought you had to, and then realize that these are a package. And what a difference it makes. Does it make a complete difference? Is it fulfilled in my life? No. But it's getting more there. I'm growing in grace and in knowledge as I try to follow the Spirit. And you know the same experience. And that's why it's important that we reinforce these holy days and not just celebrate the giving of the commandments and not just celebrate the giving of the Spirit, but celebrate the giving of the commandments and the Spirit, which together will be the basis of the new covenant that will manifest the fulfillment of all that God promised in Israel and in the nations who have come to the Messiah. Let's pray.